My wife often tells me that I need to share illustrations um, that appeal to both men and women. She says, sometimes my illustrations are always two-guy, top-heavy. So she's had me read some romance books to know a little bit about women, and I walk, watch some movies with my daughter, A Walk to Remember, and maybe once in a while I'll watch The Bachelor just to get an idea. <laughs> just to get an idea. Ken, you've done it too, right? For his son, yeah, for this, oh, anyhow. But today I want to talk about a, um, I want to use as an illustration, I think, that will help us understand where we're at in the Beatitudes of a movie that was a musical named My Fair Lady. How many women here have ever seen My Fair Lady? Raise your hand. How many guys have seen My Fair Lady? Wow, quite a bit. Bill, you've seen it, haven't you? It's so if you think it's a wimpy show, Bill has seen it and you tell him. <laughs> the, the movie's about a character named Eliza Doolittle. She sells flowers on the streets of London, and she's, she's dirt poor. Like, she's a peasant. She's dirt, dirt poor. And so along with her low station in life, she also has no manners, no refinement, and she has her cockney English, and it's atrocious. She's, she often says, I'm a good girl, I am. Oh, she'll say that all the time, you know. And her, her accent, according to one man, just grates on the ears. And this man is, of course, his name is Henry Higgins, or Henry Higgins. Henry Higgins is a phonetics professor. That means he studies the science of speech, so he knows languages and accents perfectly well. And he finds Eliza Doolittle's speech just atrocious. He calls it deliciously low, and he says she's so horribly dirty. Dirty like a gutter snipe is what he calls her. It's not too kind. But this guy hears him talking and says, hey, I'll bet you six months' time we can get her to pass as a duchess at the embassy ball, which would be before the queen and all of these dignitaries in England. So he says, I'll take that bet. I'll take the bet. So he has her come to his like he lives in a huge house, has her live there so he can learn, she can learn how to speak. So some of you probably heard this phrase, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. And she says it like this, the rain in Spain stays mainly on the plain. And he gets her to say, the rain in Spain falls mainly. And after a while, she does it. She finally does it. So he says, hey, maybe let's try an experiment. So he teaches her a little bit more vocabulary. And he brings her to the races with the highfalutin people. Dresses her up in a really nice hat, a beautiful gown. And he just says, don't get into too much conversation. I just want to see how well you do, how well you can fool people. She does pretty well. That is until she starts getting into conversation. And then she goes to watch a race. She has a horse named Dover. And Dover's in second place, and it's getting closer and closer, and out comes her personality. And she says, Dover, move your bloomin'! And I won't say the third one. <laughs> she says it in front of everybody, and they're appalled. So in other words, even though she can dress up, that poor girl is still there on the inside. Well, they still take a couple more months with her. They give her another shot. And not only does she learn refinement, but her character starts changing. Everything about her starts changing. And they go to the Duchess Ball. And this is what she looks like. And she actually passes for a 
Romanian princess or a Hungarian princess by another phonetics professor that says for sure she's royalty. After the ball, she realizes she's not the old Eliza Doolittle. And it's kind of depressing because she says, I can't go back to my old way of life. Not only is her accent different, but her whole view of life is utterly turned upside down on its head. In a very same way, that's exactly what Matthew 5 is all about. It's meant to transform us and take us out of this old gutter snipe existence where we're obsessed with ourselves, where we treat other people horribly, and it's meant to transform us into somebody that looks and talks and acts like Christ. Today we're looking at verse 7. Verse 7, I would say, is the sign that says you've changed. In some ways you could say verse 3, 4, and 5 is it's the same thing, but you can still put on that ex- exterior look of humility, that exterior humble dignity. But the way to tell if it's really any inside is verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so we're talking all about mercy. And I believe mercy, mercy is what's on the inside, and it comes out towards others. And I think it's the single most telltale sign a person is truly different. And so we're going to talk just in generalities about what the sermon has been doing to us. I'm calling it the beatitude in the sense it's meant to change your attitude. Religion often is about do this, do that, look this way, look that way. True Christianity is about being. Being. Being a type of person. Who you are on the inside, not how you look doing it. Jesus has come to change your attitude, the way you see life. And then, when your attitude is changed, your actions will follow. They will especially when it comes to how you act towards others. In verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, we have been studying the inner man and his relationship with God. I'm poor in spirit. I mourn over my brokenness. I'm meek before other men and God. And then I get filled with his righteousness. Some scholars would say these first verses are the first commandment of Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. Now we're moving to the Beatitudes where it's the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the way you do that is mercy. It's all about mercy. Mercy defined, well, this is what we're going to follow. One scholar said, mercy is something you first have to know. It first has to be inside of you if you're going to show it. So our sermon is going to follow the idea of mercy known. So we first need to know what we're talking about when we talk about mercy. And then we're going to talk about how it's shown. How you show it to your neighbor. How you love the person that lives next door to you. So let's talk about mercy known. So I'm going to give you the definitions. But the, the definition is to show clemency, 
a ruler has you basically under the law, you're condemned, and he pardons you. Somebody's in jail, and he releases you. That's really what mercy is. Mercy also is the idea of holding back deserved punishment, pity, wanting to relieve suffering. So these three points are going to go a little bit deeper. The first thing I'd say about mercy, it's one side of God's unconditional coin of love. We often say God's love is unconditional. He gives it to you based on nothing you've done, not who you are, and not how you act. He loves you, so he gives you this coin, expecting nothing in return. So when you take this coin, you put this coin in your hand, and I'm going to explain it even like this at the supper. On, on one side, you have, I'm going to say, the blood is God's grace. He gives you what you don't deserve. He gives to you what is not really earned. It's out of love. But on the other side of the coin is his bread, or the mercy of God. He holds back from what you do deserve. That's mercy. And this is the common expression of mercy, is mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. To go a little bit deeper in mercy, I'd also say mercy is having pity on people in misery. You see their plight, and you're broken about it. And not only are you broken, but you have to do something about it. Reminds me of a commercial back in the 70s where this person's driving down the road and they roll down the window and they throw out trash in the side of the road. And they're standing, standing an American Indian and he sees it and a tear comes down his eye. And they say that commercial is one of the most powerful commercials in the history of America because what it does is it expresses his brokenness over something that is wrong. In the same way, mercy is you see wrong in other people's lives and it breaks you and you want to do something about it you want to relieve it it's the good Samaritan who sees the man on the side of the road and he puts him on his donkey and he brings him to the to the hotel and he gives him medicine while everybody else passed by he's the only one that had mercy and the third thing about mercy is I'm going to call it God's calling card it looks like this mercy are us. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's who they are. And in my estimation, I think it's the most important aspect about God. It's what makes us fall in love with Him. Just some thoughts about mercy. Mercy is a quality that God alone possesses. And any mercy you show others is because God has filled you with his mercy. The reason I say this is by nature mankind is vindictive. We want revenge. We are cruel. We will hold people to the umpteenth end of the law until they pay it all back. Mercy lets go. We want an eye for an eye. We like Schroedenfreude. How do you say that word, Ken? Schroedenfreude. Schadenfreude which means I delight in other people's misery. Makes me feel really good. That's nature of man. You deserve what you're getting. But God lets go because he already possesses all that he needs. Actually, people who retaliate, retaliate for two reasons. To keep people down and to pay them back and we don't want them ever doing it to us again because of, I would say, we don't feel full in ourselves. We don't feel content. 
So we want to push others down to heighten ourselves where God doesn't need to because he's already confident in his superiority and his perfection. Take it like this. Let's say, it says in Isaiah that mankind is like a grasshopper. So imagine I have a little black grasshopper in my hand. Say I take this hand and then I go like this to the grasshopper. And I smash him. And then I say, look at how strong I am. What an amazing guy. Or let's say there's a bunch of ants and I step on them. Aren't I something? You would probably say there is really something wrong with you. If God boasted that he can pour wrath out on us, it's the same thing. Do you know every other God loves to show how great they are? But our God is the only God who shows his greatness by not stepping on us. And then I look up and I realize I deserve it. And I'm compelled by his mercy. Power means nothing, really. But sometimes we as Americans and we as human beings think it does. Look how strong I am. But a person who is full doesn't need to retaliate. A person who is full doesn't mind giving. A person who already won the victory doesn't need to keep fighting. That's why I believe this verse, verse 7, comes right after verse 6. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now that I'm filled, I want to give, not threaten and stamp out. So God never loses anything, nor is he ever threatened. Therefore, all he has to give is mercy. Even when you're online and you get mad, why are you getting mad? What are you scared of losing? Patience comes from a confident standing. Mercy comes from the victors. And maybe if you don't give mercy to others, maybe you haven't been filled. Why do you need to always win? Are you not confident in who you are or secure in your position that God has put you in, that he loved you and he died for you? Why do you need to prove yourself? Why do you need to retaliate? Because they deserve it, but didn't you? It's a, it's, a very, it's a very blessed thing to be a person of mercy. It's almost unheard of. I want to show you some verses of mercy that are fantastic. First one's in the Old Testament, Nehemiah. I would say this, if you let this soak in, this is, this is a uh, shocking movement of verses. So you have verse 31. It talks about the character of God. It says, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, talking about God, you did not make an end to, of them, that means his people Israel, or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. So when you read that, it just says God is merciful and he didn't relent on Israel. If you read it just as a standalone verse, it's great. But if you read it in context, it will show you why it's so great. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, Nevertheless, they are able to capture fortified cities. In verse 25, God gave their descendants all kind of stuff. But nevertheless, they were disobedient. God's people were. They rebelled. And they cast his law behind their back. They, they killed God's prophets. Prophets were sent to warn them. And they committed great blasphemies. That's 
usually talking about idolatry. They served other gods. So they killed God's prophets, they committed idolatry, and they turned their back on God. Therefore, verse 27, God gave them over to their enemies who made them suffer. So God's grace was to let them get captured. And in the time of their sufferings, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them. So he saw them in their great need. He had pity on them, and he rescued them. So they're rescued. But then you got to verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again. They did it again. Did you ever do the same thing again and again and again? And so you abandoned them to their enemies so that they had dominion over them. When they turned and cried to you, you heard again from heaven and you delivered them again because of the, his mercy. In verse 29, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously. They did not obey your commandments but sinned against your rules, which is what a person does them, he'll live by them. So God gives his laws for their good, but they don't want it. They turn their back on him. They turned a stubborn shoulder and they stiffened their neck and they didn't obey. And in verse 30, many years you kept up with this. You kept up with the same cycle. And you warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they didn't give ear. So then it says in verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercy. That's outstanding. Do you know God does the same thing with us again and again and again and again and again and again and again? I do the same things over and over. He answers a prayer, and the next day I complain he's not answering my prayer. I yell at him for not talking to me. I don't never hear from you, but I never talk to him. His mercy is incredible. Then this is another incredible verse. Look at Romans 11.32. This is one of these verses that I mention this often, but it, it has captured me about five years ago because what it is, it's the antithesis of what people think Christianity is. They think Christianity is God helps the good people. God helps those who help themselves. Or Christianity is about being the best you can be. But look at Romans 11.32. Romans 11.32 says, For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on them all. So God gives all people over to disobedience. That means all of us are going to sin. Well, disobedience shows need. That's why he allows it. It reveals my inadequacy. And if I don't, see my inadequacy, I won't reach out for him. So in a way, that disobedience he allows for the purpose so I will taste his mercy. And once I taste his mercy, I fall in love with him. One of Satan's biggest games is to make us think there's nothing wrong with us. And when we don't think there's anything wrong with us, we don't reach out for him and we won't taste his mercy. But when we taste his mercy, you'll never want to go back. And then the final verse I want you to take a look at is James. Hebrews, James, James chapter 2, the second part of verse 13. Second part of verse 13 basically says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy 
giving people another chance, not judging, is really the strong person. It's really the triumph. Judgment is easy. It's easy to cancel people. It's easy to criticize people. It's easy to find flaws. It's really hard when somebody says, will you forgive me, to say, absolutely. Yep. I'll give you another chance. So, let's just go into this. I will say, in order to give mercy, you first have to experience mercy. You won't know something until you know that thing. So mercy is something, it's not just an intellectual understanding. It's something that, as we like to say, it's an existential reality. Existential in the sense of, to know it, you must know it on the inside. Mercy is more than a definition. It's something that, once you taste it, you don't want to go back. But I believe you cannot know how to give mercy until you personally have experienced mercy. Jesus says it like this. Those who are forgiven much, love much. So the way you can tell if you've tasted mercy is I'm going to give you two statements, and I am going to say those who have tasted mercy will understand these statements. Those who have not won't have a clue what these statements are talking about. The first statement is this. The degree of mercy received, so degree means how deep, how wide, how strong that we sing. The degree of mercy received correlates directly to your view of justice rightly deserved. In other words, if you know you deserved full condemnation when you're let go, that mercy will be incredible. But if you don't think God's mercy is that big a deal, then you don't think you deserve judgment, probably. And part of the reason why is we live in a culture that doesn't see anything wrong with sin. We want God to turn a blind eye to sin. Like, God, why are you, why are you making such a big deal about sin? Because we don't think sin's that bad. And if I sin, why do I deserve punishment? God's got a lot of money. He can just let me go, can't he? So I think we live in a culture that sees sin as something either made up by the church or it's just a small infraction that God should be able to look past. But I think one of the reasons people are mad at God is they know that he can't look past it. And they can't understand why he can't look past it. And then they're like, why does God make such a mountain out of a molehill? If I want to sleep with my girlfriend or boyfriend, what's the big deal? So like... Every, so I'm bisexual. What's the big deal? Why is that such a big deal? So I want to abort a baby in a womb. That's my prerogative. Why does he have to be so concerned about it? The reason why is every sin committed rents a hole in God's shalom. And what God's shalom is is perfect peace, harmony, goodness, perfection, beauty. Shalom is when a car engine hums. And it just runs right. Shalom is when, spiritually speaking, when the world's right. And every sin is like throwing a wrench in your car engine. It destroys it. And so what happens, the more sins we have, the more we just think that's the way life is. What's the big deal? That's why I can't wait to go to heaven, because it won't be ruined. 
And so when God speaks to you and says, turn, repent, because this is what you owe, when he does it with this still small voice and you're broken on the inside, then when he says you're forgiven, you'll understand mercy and there's nothing better. But I'm afraid not many people really know forgiveness. So what's the big deal? Here's the second statement. The degree of pity you give towards others, pity is just your personal care towards others' plight. The degree of pity given correlates to the joy that you feel of the freedom of mercy. When you feel freedom, you want to give that, ex that feeling to others. When you are set free from eternal damnation, the moment you feel it, well, you'll never forget it. I would even say it like this. On the other end, right before you are set free, that same turmoil, that same grief, that same anxiety, you taste it and it, it about crushes you. And then when it's released, you will start seeing that crushing in others and you're going to want to do, do something about it. I'll give you a, this is a really minor illustration. But have you ever seen a really good movie and it moved your heart so much you have to tell somebody about it? Remember my sister Gina saw Rocky, the first Rocky. We're driving in a car and I'm in the back seat, my dad's driving, and she's like, Chris, Dad and I just saw this movie. Won't you, you, Chris, would love this movie. Dad, can we take Chris tomorrow to go see Rocky? My dad's like, sure, let's go take him. And I can remember going into the movie theater, my sister's like, Chris, I can't wait till you see when he runs to the music. You'll love this movie. And she knew I would. So she wanted to take me so she could see the joy in my face when I saw that part. When you taste mercy and if you love somebody, you can't wait to see the joy on their face when they taste it. You got to tell them. But if you've never tasted mercy, you probably have no desire to evangelize. So once you experience it, you got to show it. And I'll say mercy shown is shown in very simple, everyday experiences. Not always on massive scales. I would even say it's in the everyday of life. And here's four ways that if somebody really has been filled, this is how they'll live. Number one, I now give second chances because every day is a second chance for me with God. Every day I have, right now, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve this morning. I don't ever deserve to preach from this pulpit ever again. I don't. And when I do, I can't believe it. So why can't I give somebody a second chance, or a third chance, or a fourth chance? Human beings have a nasty way of saying, and they're almost proud of it. I know people are proud of it. I hold grudges. That's just how our family is. You wrong me once, that's how it's going to be. Oh, that's mercy. Isn't that mercy? That's really nice of you. Or, you know, you, you miss an appointment and somebody's like, can't believe you missed an appointment with me. I miss appointments all the time. And I'll go and I'll see somebody and they'll be like, I don't know if I can ever trust you again. But then when somebody calls me and I know those people who have let me go say, hey, it's no big deal. We can reschedule. It's okay. Actually, it worked in my favor. It gave me a chance to do something. So when people call me with, when they miss an appointment, I love saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. We can reschedule. But the person that can't reschedule, why not? 
Second one, getting even, acting offended and demanding full repayment is hypocrisy. And the reason I say it's hypocrisy is according to Romans chapter 4, actually chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, it says, whenever you get mad at somebody, make sure you're not, and condemn them for that thing, make sure you've never done that thing first or you will be judged for the condemnation you're judging someone else for. So if somebody lies to you, ask yourself, have you ever lied? Fourth, uh, third one is enjoying it when people receive the full consequences for their actions. That's evil. Well, let's say even politically. On the Republican side, people, they love it now with Governor Cuomo is in trouble because, boy, they gave it to Kavanaugh when he was in trouble, so we're going to give it to Cuomo now. By golly, about time. See how the tables are turning and we drill them. Instead of saying, can't we have justice in due process for everybody? Oh no, because they did it to us last time, we're going to do it to them this time. Boy, that's mercy. Fourth one, cancel culture now is founded on judgment. Christianity is founded on mercy. Yep, Dr. Seuss, throw those books away. We rip down statues or Somebody has something drudged up in the past, and they've asked for forgiveness, but they did it in the past. So, you know, instead of canceling, really, you know what we're saying? Crucify them. Here's just a quick question. When the books are opened in the last day, when they open up your words, your motives, and your actions, are you going to be innocent? Just a question. Because if you, it says in James, if you sin at one of those things, you're going to be guilty for all of them. That's not mercy. So, we are to forgive. But what if you don't forgive? Jesus said something in Matthew 6. He said, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So what does that mean? Like that's a big that's a big question. Does it mean I cannot be saved if I don't forgive others? I would say this isn't as much about salvation as it is about conversion. If you're really converted, you will forgive. If you're not converted, you probably won't. Or Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones puts it like this: if I am not merciful, there's only one explanation. I have never understood it. So I probably am not forgiven. 